Sorry, I can't say much about uh, Benin because I don't know a lot about this country. I know they speak French over there, and uh, oh yeah, that's where Voodoo started. Hello, and thank you for downloading. You're listening to Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure, a weekly series looking at unfamiliar places across the world, an aspect of travelling you may never have thought of. I'm your host, Ian Oliver, also known as the Barefoot Backpacker, a middle-aged Brit with a passion for offbeat travel, history, culture, and the whys behind travel itself. So join me as we venture beyond the brochure. change my intro at some point it still says my pods a weekly one i think we can all agree yeah it's quite funny if nothing else so how are you this month bored of january yet don't worry it'll be over by the weekend and then we'll be into february the deep dark depths of winter when the cold and rain really hit for sure although it is getting noticeably lighter here darkness doesn't come now until about 5 p.m which is you know taking a bit of getting used to this year it's also been quite sunny this week here in Nottinghamshire, as it happens, but no doubt that won't last. In fact, I'm looking out of my window right now, and it's quite grey, which is a bit awkward, because I've got some washing on the line. I'm not expecting a cold blast like my mother's favourite newspaper forewarns every autumn, but I'm certain I won't go the whole of 2020 without seeing some snow. I can't remember if I've ever seen a calendar year without snow, possibly like 1988 or something. I could do without a repeat of 2011, though, when I didn't see my work colleague for five weeks, because she lived in the countryside and no one gritted the access road. I've been listening to a few different podcasts recently. The bus journey from my house to the centre of Nottingham is about 45 minutes, and to Sheffield's about an hour and a half, so both are really great times to sit back and listen, albeit with volume turned up quite high, because I sometimes have trouble hearing people speak over the noise of the bus. Maybe we just have really loud buses. Anyway, most of them are about travel. One of them, though, is about asexuality. An entire podcast, not just an episode, on asexuality. Who'd have thunk it? It's called Sounds Fake But Okay, by the way, and they've done over 115 episodes to date. But that's not what I was going to say. I let myself get distracted there. What I wanted to say was two things. Firstly, it's only by listening to podcasts that you realise just how different each of them are, and how everyone has a, a different way of structuring them. A few, like mine, are mostly one voice, though some are interview-based with one main host and a couple of contributors. Many of them, though, are two people, kind of feeding off each other and bantering. It feels more like you're listening to a private conversation rather than, well, let's be honest, a lecture. You can also tell, I think, who reads from a script, or at least has a very detailed episode plan, and who is much more mm, chatty. I think the two go hand in hand, though. It's much easier to be casual when there's two of you to bounce off each other. It's not my style, nor personality to do that, although maybe if I did a pod like that with someone else, it might actually be possible to do it weekly, as it would require surprisingly less preparation. Secondly, I don't know if it's just because of the circles my lifestyle moves in, but the vast majority of people I'm listening to right now are female, and almost none of them are British. They're pretty much all Australians, New Zealanders and Canadians. I don't know if podcasts are just more popular in those regions, or if they're the only people that talk about travel, or if I'm just still in a small bubble and I need to get out of it more. Who knows? Anyway... What have I been doing this past two weeks? Well, in truth, very little. 
after the highs of writing so many blog posts about West Africa and, of course, finishing off the book, I've kind of hit a wall of late with my motivation. It's not been helped by both an overbearing sense of dread and excess pessimism about the future, nor the excessive alcohol consumption. They feed into each other somewhat in a bit of a vicious circle. I've been trying to write some posts about a more recent adventure into southern Africa from the early part of 2016, but I guess I'm just not in the right frame of mind for it, I think. I've thought about going away somewhere and just trying to recalibrate myself, but I'm finding even that hard to both motivate and justify right now. In truth, I don't really know what I want. A place to hike, a place to chill, a place to do nothing, an exploration? I, I don't know. All I know is I feel like I need to get away from here and from Europe and go somewhere warmer and less stressy. Yeah, we'll see. I have been away the last couple of weekends. I mentioned last time I was going away with a couple of friends to drink in Oxford. Then the weekend just gone, I was visiting my friend in Sheffield. We didn't do a lot. Both her and her two lodges were really suffering from the kind of cold that I'd had a couple of weeks before. I did fail to do a park run on the Saturday morning, though. I'd looked up how to get there from her house on a map, but then didn't look at the map as I was jogging there. It was pretty much a straight line from her house, so it should have been pretty simple. Of course, straight lines on a map look different in real life, especially when the road junction has two roads going in almost the same direction. Anyway, I went east instead of north, and while I eventually ended up in the right place, I got there eight minutes late, so it didn't bother in the end. Though it meant I'd probably ran more getting there than I would have done at the run anyway, so nothing was lost. Maybe better next week, when I'm due to be in Sheffield again, as I might, might, mark you, be being interviewed on BBC Radio Sheffield. It's one of those things that I'll only believe is happening as it's happening, if you know what I mean. But if it does, I'll give you the details next time, so you can listen to it on the Listen Again function on their website. My pod this week is, naturally enough I guess, on West Africa, since I've been writing a lot about it of late, so it's fresh in my mind. I went there quite a few years ago now, it was November, December 2014. It isn't generally the first place on the average British backpacker's itinerary, but as you know by now, I'm not exactly the average backpacker. It's not a region we in Britain know a lot about. One may think that's surprising given British colonial history, but remember, apart from really big events, we're generally not taught about anything that happened outside Britain. It took until A-level to get a firm grasp of anything even European. My first real knowledge of the region came at university, when, in my first year of an ultimately abortive degree course, I don't think my mother ever forgave me for quitting in social and economic history. Ironically, one might argue that's now exactly what my blog genre is. We did a compulsory module in West African cultural studies. I don't remember a lot about it, obviously, because it was university, and I barely turned up. But I do recall it concentrated a lot on Nigeria. Listener, I have not been to Nigeria. For a British citizen, it's quite hard a country to get a visa for. While not quite demanding you write the application form in blood, it's certainly amongst the more onerous of visas to get. Paperwork, proof of income, proof of journey, proof that someone in the country can vouch you. I realise that a lot of country citizens have similar burdens when they visit most of the countries in the world, but my privilege as a British citizen is being able not to choose to deal with that. Fast forward a couple of decades. So I'm now a seasoned traveller, and I'm looking for somewhere new to visit. I need somewhere interesting, both culturally and historically, somewhere relatively not cold, and somewhere where language won't be too much of a problem. So I'm browsing my local bookstore at the Travel Guides, and pick one up for West Africa. Within 35 seconds, I knew I wanted, nay needed, to see Benin. The rest of my plans fell naturally into place. Starting in Benin, I'd travel along the coast to Senegal, another country that seemed to fit perfectly with my travel criteria, Ghana, too, felt like a country that I needed to explore the more I read about it. And, of course, the recent history of both Sierra Leone and Liberia meant I felt obliged to go there and see places I'd only previously heard negative things about in the news. Unfortunately, I timed my visit at exactly the same time as the Ebola outbreak. 
this curtailed my plans. Not because of Ebola itself, but more that three countries, uh, Guinea, Liberia and Sierra Leone, closed their borders to most traffic, making an overland trip to Senegal pretty much impossible. When the alternative was to travel through Mali, and at the time that wasn't a country to be in. Quick change of plans, and a much smaller routing would see me spend five weeks in a loop from Ghana to Benin via Burkina Faso and Togo. Going in without expectations made it interesting. My main fear was being a solo introverted traveller. I knew the typical West African was inclusive and overly friendly, so I was worried a bit about being able to have personal space or time to myself and not be smothered. The only other comment was made by a chap I worked with at the time whose family had emigrated from Sierra Leone some decades previously. He said, people will look at you strangely because of your body hair. Apparently West Africans are relatively smooth. Who knew? One of the things I had picked up on the way through life is a vague impression that West Africans are religious. Now, I don't mean ticking the box on the census form religious. I mean evangelical preacher religious. My first confirmation of this was on my very first morning of my adventure, in fact. I'd taken a local minibus from my guest house in the northwestern suburbs of Accra, the capital of Ghana. It was a Monday, so a fairly standard commuting working day. The minibus was pretty full, so when the clean-shaven twenty-something chap in a grey suit came on and stood at the front, I didn't think anything of it, until he started talking, loudly, to the bus passengers. But not in a ranty, too-much-alcohol way. No, this was confident and self-assured. He spoke in a kind of patois, enough English words for me to get the gist, but not enough to understand the content. But it was when the entire bus responded to his words with the occasional hallelujah that I understood what was going on. The bus had its own preacher. And this was considered normal. Even just wondering how an Accra later that day confirmed the rest to me. Everywhere were posters with religious bent, some advertising church events, some directly preaching the word. The most interesting and related aspect were the posters with huge images of people on them, the sort you might find at election time. Except the only voters for these people had halos. They were advertising funerals. The posters listed all the things that the person had done in their life and invited people to their funeral and get-together, a sort of celebration of life, as it were. The other thing that's very apparent, especially across Ghana, is the religious bent of the shops. This is not a place to find something as simple as Kwame Johnson Electrics or Dokuman Reprographics. Rather, you'll find shops with names like Trust in God Catering Services and God Time is the Best Art Shop. Even if the business is completely secular in scope, it may well have a religious business name. As an aside, the other interesting juxtaposition I noticed was that Ghana and Togo has a passion for what you might call public information, especially with regards to health. There's a phrase in England, cleanliness is next to godliness. Well, in Ghana it's literally true. There are religious posters right next to health posters. I finished my adventure in the last few days before Christmas. The last couple of days I spent in the Ghanaian town of Ho in the southwest of the country, in a hotel in, with a TV in the bedroom. Switching it on, not only did I notice the ticker feed at the bottom, which in the UK would be breaking news, but here in Ghana it was more funeral notifications and invites, but also the TV advertising had a Christmassy theme, with all manner of TV idents and jingles, complete with snowmen, sledges and people wrapped up warm. The juxtaposition of this with walking barefoot in a short-sleeved shirt down the streets in high 20s degrees Celsius was rather odd. Since the country is well within the tropics and the highest mountain is smaller than that of the UK, I doubt the average Ghanaian has ever seen snow, let alone what to do with it. Of course, Christianity is not the only religion. The further north you go in West Africa, the stronger the influence of Islam. For me, it was mostly evident in Burkina Faso and Benin, where you saw mosques built pretty much alongside churches, I'm not saying the people live in peace and harmony together, but certainly at the time of my visit there didn't feel like any animosity between cultures, 
nor any indication that there was any kind of religious warfare about to break out. Since I left, I know some extremists have penetrated northern Burkina Faso from neighbouring Mali, but as I'm sure you know, they don't represent Islam any more than the Westboro Baptist Church represents Christianity. Now, Benin itself is an outlier. There's a joke amongst the Beninois that they're 50% Christian, 50% Islam and 100% voodoo. I've written a blog post specifically about voodoo, but in a nutshell, it's the native religion of many in Benin, predominantly the cultures of the south of the country. And given the foreign and colonial influences over the centuries, the people have taken these influences and pretty much merged them into their voodoo. In essence, objects like the crown of thorns have become merely another fetish object. Uh, Don't be fooled by the name, by the way. Voodoo is simply a religion that venerates ancestors and believes in divine spirits. Voodoo priests conduct ceremonies with all manner of objects, but the vast majority of reasons to seek out a priest fall into two somewhat mundane categories. None of this I want to see my enemy suffer pain lock. Rather, it's either I need luck in my upcoming exam or, see, there's this girl and I really fancy her. They also believe the best way to protect against the wrath of divine spirits is to imbibe a somewhat different, but no less powerful, type of spirit. All I'm saying is, if that's representative of the blood of Christ, he may have had a drinking problem. One of the other strong experiences I had on my journey has been summed up by some of my African followers on Twitter. They describe it as TIA, or This Is Africa. It's a phrase often heard when travelling around the region, and the best way to describe it is as a shrug. A sense of knowing that nothing is ever quite going to work as advertised or planned, but equally that it doesn't really matter, because there's always a workaround. It's most often seen in regards to transport. Buses and trotros, the Ghanaian local minibuses, are rarely timetabled. And even when they are, they don't. Rather, they leave when the moment feels right, which is often when four more people than designed are in the vehicle. That my minibus in Togo from Lome to Kapalime departed while still half empty still surprises me to this day. Basically, when the driver and his friends decide that it's time to leave. Regardless of where you're going, though, there'll always be at least one bus a day, and the people at the bus station, by no means official, you don't find anyone in a uniform, will guide you to the right one, or make sure you have an alternative option. Trust them, they know what they're doing, and remember... You will always make it there, eventually. Even those buses that do have a polished itinerary view the times as more like guidelines than absolute rules, as was evident when I was in Tamale, in central Ghana. I'd booked a ticket for the daily coach to Merle National Park, one of those rare African beasts which did supposedly run to a set timetable rather than just departing when full, or when the driver or passengers get bored of waiting. However, I was travelling around Tamale with a local moto taxi driver, and while my innate, just in case, let's be on time, you never know, clashed with his, it's always late, don't worry, I guess I'd probably be waiting around for a while. We were still having lunch at the due departure time, 1.30pm, although in a compromise, he did agree to eat it in a cafe close to the bus station. The bus, by the way, left about five. In addition, there's no guarantee the bus won't break down en route, but you know that when it does, regardless of where, within a couple of minutes, there's at least four people, usually teenage boys, going at it with spanners and hammers, and within a short while it'll be working again. Who needs a branded garage when you have an adjustable wrench and a cup of tea? Even if there are no buses, there's always something. A share taxi, a chap on a moto scooter, something. If you need to be in Katunu in Benin by 10pm, you'll get to Katunu by 10pm, regardless of how it looks at 5pm in a small village halfway across the country. The other thing to remember is you always get to your destination regardless of what happens. You just have to trust people, which for me is always hard, but you know they have more experience about these things than you do. Ah yes, the share taxi. Similar to the Trotro, these are vehicles that plough their way between towns and villages, except that being cars, they're smaller and thus likely to be both quicker and depart sooner. 
Similar to the Trotros and buses, though, they're ludicrously overcrowded and overloaded with luggage. The one I caught across the Burkina-Benin border had seven people in a five-seater car, including two people in the front passenger seat, while one I took down much of the spine of Benin had so much freight on it, including a fridge, that you could almost touch the road with your foot. The moto, or motorbike taxi, is the standard local transport within a town or to surrounding villages. Anyone who's ever been to Southeast Asia, especially Cambodia, will be familiar with these. Katuno in Benin runs very much on them. They're called Zem, and the riders there all wear yellow t-shirts, which, with the sound of the motor scooters themselves, make them appear like hordes of wasps or bees when they come riding down the street. The advantage of the motor taxi is, of course, the state of some of the roads. Gravel, worn, full of potholes, means that riding on two wheels is often much more efficient than trying it on four. This overriding casual attitude common in transportation also extends to goods, services and accommodation. If you need new battery for your phone, there's a chap at the bus station who can get you one. If you have a disaster crossing borders and end up stuck in a small village, hmm, there will always be a hotel, a guest house, someone's house if necessary. I ended up sleeping on a mattress in an apartment with a motor driver in Tamale, as none of the guest houses we tried had any rooms available, and that was what he saw as the perfect solution. Note that this doesn't apply to administration or corporations. It's very much an individual or community feeling. Sometimes there's almost a resigned acceptance of administration failures. The regular power outages in Accra are seen as something that happens, and as a result there's an awful lot of shops selling generators than you might expect in a large city. Adapting is better than challenging. Also, my hotel in Ho advertised Wi-Fi, but when I got there they told me it hasn't been working for a while, Vodafone haven't got round to fixing it. In this case, fortunately for my apparent internet addiction at the time, there was an internet cafe a little walk down the road opposite, probably less than three minutes away. With a generator, of course. The majority of the accommodation I stayed in could be best described as guest houses. In the main, they were pretty simple. Plain rooms with stone walls in a building surrounded by a courtyard. If I was lucky, the rooms would have an ensuite bathroom. If I was very lucky and fancied splurging out on unadulterated luxury like I did in Bobo di Alasso in Burkina Faso, they had aircon. There were very few hostels, as you might find in much of the rest of the world. Aside from Merlin National Park, the, uh, my own experience with dormitory accommodation was in Katuno, Benin, but even there I had the dorm to myself, and judging by the guest book, the last people in the dorm had been there over a week earlier. This wasn't out of choice, but simply a lack of hostel options. Even the much-lauded backpacker hangout in Kumasi in Ghana had long closed by the time I got there. The cost of accommodation varied, but felt on par with my experiences in Central Asia and some bits of Eastern Europe. The cheapest I paid was around £5 a night, whilst my splurges rarely cost more than £15. And obviously these were prices at the time, so I've probably risen in line with everything else. Unusually as well for my travel experiences, I did a fair amount of on-spec booking rather than booking anywhere in advance. Most of the time this worked pretty well, despite the fact I was using a six-year-old guidebook as a reference. As I previously mentioned, it didn't work in Tamale and Ghana, but that was probably the only time. Uh, one of the reasons why I did this, of course, is because I don't like using the telephone, and they often didn't have websites and certainly didn't appear on travel booking sites. So it was literally a case of that was about the only way I was going to book anything without having to speak to people, and I don't like doing that. Even in the smallest of towns, there were always options. The hotel in Hamile, at the Ghana-Burkina border, wasn't exactly salubrious. It was a concrete block built around a central courtyard that looked a little like an old stable building, and had no signs save a scrawled phone number on the external wall by the front door. The room itself was a dark cell-like place with bare floors and windows that opened only a little, 
but it was £5 a night, 25 sedis, it worked, and was relatively comfortable, despite the outside squat toilet overflowing with rubbish and home to two cockroaches the size of my middle finger. I went there once, and I did not sit down. Most of my accommodation was, however, much better than this. The best I had were in Burkina Faso, with some lovely peaceful settings and funky, colourful room designs, while sat amongst the trees one could sit and eat and drink. Granted, the meals in my Bobo guesthouse were, as revealed in the small print of the menu, actually provided by a local takeaway and the guesthouse merely acted as an intermediary, but I'm not holding that against them. Uh, one final note, you may find uh, lizards, small lizards, in your accommodation. They are harmless and mostly helpful. Don't be scared of them. So, you've managed to get to your destination, booked into your guesthouse. What next? Maybe find something to eat. Well, I hope you like starch. See, I live within an hour of several major cities in the UK. I'm not aware of any of them having a specifically West African restaurant. Part of me wants to say the reason for this is because the average Brit wouldn't uh, appreciate the nuances of the cuisine, but this is very much your mileage may vary territory. Much of what I ate on my travels was bought from street stalls and local cafes restaurants, and in the main consisted of two different styles, corresponding to largely on how far away from the sea I was. My early experiences, of course, were with a Ghanaian variant of that West African staple, jollof. This is a dish primarily made with rice and tomatoes, to which other meats and the like are added. For me, this seemed to be pretty much exclusively either chicken or fish, and regards to fish, specifically tilapia. It sold pretty much everywhere and fairly standard. In the north of Ghana, and much of my time in the Francophone nations, I encountered somewhat different kinds of dishes, using cassava rather than rice as a base. In Ghana, the main type is banku. Uh, imagine a kind of dumpling-like substance made with a combination of corn and cassava dough. Elsewhere in West Africa, you find fufu, more consistency of mashed potato, and made with pounded cassava and plantain. To get a truly authentic texture, the cassava needs to be pounded by hand for upwards of six hours, not one for participants on Come Dine With Me. Both banko and fufu tend to be served with stews or soups, often again chicken or tilapia. One of the more popular soups with fufu is sauce arashid, ground nuts. Another popular one is okra, which gives it a much more sticky texture. It goes without saying you can eat both with your fingers the same way that Westerners might use bread. Note that I found it very difficult to get anything at all to eat between about midday and 3pm, especially in the Francophone countries. Presumably this is due to the oppressive heat in the middle of the day. A lot of shops and restaurants close for a siesta. This often involves the owner sleeping on the seats or benches in front of their business in the shade of the overhang, which is definitely not something you get in the UK. Be prepared to have an early lunch, or a really late one. Having said which, 6am is quite busy and a great time to catch buses. I'm not a person who enjoys or appreciates naps. They give me headaches and make me feel like a badger has gone to the toilet in my mouth, so I end up being quite fond of the early night on my trip. With regard to beer, incidentally, of course, you know I'm going to talk about beer, but only very little. Burkina Faso has its own lager, which is, you know, drinkable, while Ghana follows Nigeria and its strange passion for Guinness. As far as I'm aware, or certainly on my trip, I didn't find any craft beer. That may have changed by now. I intend to find out next time I visit, obviously. So, you've now eaten, you've slept a bit, maybe it's time to explore the local countryside. Well, first the bad news. If you want remote sand dunes, snow-covered high mountain passes, great plains full of billowing wildebeest, large tracts of mostly trail-free rainforest, sand dunes, salty air, quaint little villages here and there, you're in the wrong part of Africa. This bit of Africa, specifically, is relatively flat and mostly dusty, sand-covered bushland crisscrossed with bright orange gravel roads. However, 
This is, as with a lot of Africa, a wild and vague generalisation. While it doesn't have the peaks or extremes of the likes of Morocco, Tanzania or Democratic Republic of Congo, the scenery here shouldn't be dismissed as just something to look at for a few seconds while you fiddle with the settings on your music player. The borderland of Ghana and Togo is amongst the most varied of the scenery encountered on the trip. This is the land of coffee plantations, hills and waterfalls. On the Ghanaian side, I visited Mount Gemi and the waterfalls at Ote. On the Togolese side, there's no much difference between them. I went to the waterfalls at Wome and up Mount Agu. Mount Gemi is one of the highest mountains in Ghana. It's about 800 metres. The highest is Afadja at 885. I didn't climb much of it as the bus drops you up in the nearby village of Amadzofe, which itself is just over 670 metres high. So much of the fun, and I use the word quite Becky the Travellery, has already been taken out of it. I was alone for the short walk from the village. I was supposed to have a guide, but he was apparently on the mountain already. But, quote, don't worry, you'll bump into him on the way, unquote. Listener, I did not. So my solitude, plus the hazy grey cloud cover blocking out pretty much most of the view, gave the whole place an eerie, bleak air, slightly at odds with the rest of Ghana. I did have a guide to the Ote waterfalls in the opposite direction from the village, as it's not signposted and it's hidden away in a cassava plantation. Although it's quite small, in the height of the wet season, the flood pool around it can get quite deep and extensive, though visiting like me during the middle of the dry season means it's nothing more than a gentle drop. Again, I was pretty much alone, apart from the guide. The Togolese equivalents are Mount Agu and Wome. Mount Agu is the highest point of Togo at massive 986 metres and is much more of a climb, although I didn't actually get to the top. The guide I was with said, quote, the trail stops here, unquote, at a village a little shy of the summit. I would have questioned this, but the view was mostly mist. I seem to have this thing with hills and mist, and I once climbed up um, Winter Hill in near Bolton in Lancashire, and it's got like a 300 metre television mast on it. I got to the top of the hill and I could see about three metres of it because it was so foggy and misty. Anyway, I digress. The view was on Mount Agu mostly mist, so I'm unconvinced that climbing to the top would have been worth the extra hassle. The track up was quite picturesque though, mainly through woodlands of coffee trees and small villages here and there. Conversely, the waterfalls at Wome were probably more spectacular than those at Ote. They were a little larger and in more secluded settings, surrounded by forest as opposed to just being on the edge of it. The ride there was also, well, well, it felt like it was more remote, so I had the impression of being on more of an adventure to get there. While the borderland is woody, there is genuine rainforest in this part of West Africa. In the south of Ghana likes Kakum National Park, a small protected area of land where you can wander either through or on a bridge above the jungle. It's certainly not Congo, but it's considerably easier to get to. Worth visiting if you're in the region, certainly. But if you specifically want to experience an African rainforest environment, this isn't quite the place. There is also, of course, Merli National Park for safaris. Again, I've written a blog post specifically about this park and the wildlife you can see there. But in summary, it's a relatively small fenced-off segment of forest in a quite remote part of Ghana. It's about the same size as Lake Manitoba in Canada, or a little bigger than, if you're British, the combined area of Nottinghamshire and Derbyshire. It is, though, one of the only places in the region where animals such as springbok, crocodile and elephant are allowed to roam free without the official threat of human predators. Official threat. Another area not too far away is the Park National de W, or Penjari National Park, and they cover small areas on the border of Benin, Niger and Burkina Faso. But again, they have the same problems of officially their wildlife sanctuaries. Anyway, I had a day-long visit to Mole, including both a 4x4 safari and a walking tour, but I didn't see much in the way of wild animals other than lots of birds, deer, oh, and one elephant. 
I mean, seeing a wild elephant for the first time is an amazing feeling. But a year later, I went to Chobe National Park in Botswana for a day trip and saw several entire herds. So, you know, again, nice enough, but other parts of Africa do this specific thing better. The area of the park near the Central Lodge, though, is home to a whole gaggle of baboons. Keep a tight hold of your bags. And a handful of warthogs. And warthogs are strangely cute. Aside from the waterfalls and forests, much of the rest of my trip was through with the same kind of landscape that, while different from what you might find in the UK, quickly became same-same. Flat open plains with red dust. Remember, this is bordering on the Sahel, the bushy borderland region between the Fertile South and the Sahara North. It's certainly a different environment from what I'm used to as a Brit, albeit not necessarily one I'd specifically travel to see. Still, far more interesting than the A14 through Cambridgeshire in Northamptonshire. Anyway, that's all for this episode. But next week, next week, I'll be turning the podcast over to you. You've given me some very good tales about your experiences in West Africa, and I couldn't fit them into this episode without either severely editing them or making the episode overly long. And I've realised I'm not really that comfortable with having an episode over about 35 to 40 minutes, although I know a lot of podcasters do. So next time, I'll be talking about your adventures in the region. Until then, have a good week. And if you're feeling off colour, and as you may notice, I'm still not recovered from my cold because my voice is going. Keep on getting better. Thank you for listening to this episode of Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, don't forget to leave a review on your podcast site of choice. I'm pretty bad at that sort of thing myself, so I'll understand perfectly if you don't. Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure was written, presented, edited and produced in the Kirkby and Asheville studio by the Barefoot Backpacker. Music in this episode was Walking Barefoot on Grass, bonus, by Kai Engel, which is available via the Free Music Archive and used under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International Licence. Previous episodes of this podcast will be available on your podcast service of choice, or alternatively on my website, barefoot-backpacker.com. If you want to contact me, I live on Twitter at rtwbarefoot, or you can email me at info at barefoot-backpacker.com. Until next time, have a safe journey. Bye for now.